Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come. Come and fill this place. Fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, last week, Patrick preached a really tough sermon on a tough subject, money. And so this week I thought I would just lighten things up a little bit. Just lift your spirits. And so I'm going to preach on suffering and grief. (laughs) And uh, I really appreciated actually uh, much of what he said. um, Most of what you said, actually. I'll just say that. Uh, But there was something actually in particular that I really appreciated. And and it resonated with me. It convicted me. Patrick was talking about money as he, and he spoke about how often money is used to distract and to insulate us from what? I would say it distracts us, it insulates us, I think probably most of all from pain, suffering, and grief. That's what we use it for a lot. You know, we don't do those things Pain, suffering, grief very well in the prosperous West, do we? I dare say we are offended that pain or grief or suffering ever comes our way. And we will do anything, we will spend anything it takes to remove grief or at least distract or insulate ourselves from it. Now for those who don't believe in God at all, who have no biblical uh, reference, I can't blame them uh, for approaching life and, and, and its sufferings this way, right? It should make sense that life would be a pain and suffering avoidance exercise. That, that makes sense to me. But if one takes this book seriously, believes what it says even just gives it a cursory read, then suffering and grief should come, first of all, as no surprise. Suffering and grief, you know, they aren't subtle. They aren't sneaky. They're not discerning and and picky. They are not well-ordered and balanced. I mean, if you read this book, what you see again and again is the harsh reality that the human condition in this fallen world is one of regular and ubiquitous suffering and pain. It just is. And the difference comes, though, in how honest we are about our suffering and grief and what we do with it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 126 that Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
In uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, he talks about it. He, he says, those who suffer for doing right are blessed. That blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, he says. He even says, blessed are the poor in Luke chapter 6. And you probably remember this, St. Paul, he famously says in his letter to the Romans chapter 5 that he and his companions rejoice in their sufferings. So we may take all kinds of measures to anesthetize, minimize, stylize, or incentivize things in our life to attempt to keep our sufferings and grief at bay, but you don't have to scratch too far below the surface to find the very things in your life and in my life that the various writers and characters in the Bible are describing. But again, how do we deal with it? Do we feel blessed? You know, we may uh, take all kinds of different lengths of time to, to come to the realization that sufferings and grief are part and parcel to the human experience, but I think we all eventually hit the wall that the writer of Ecclesiastes hit, causing him to write in chapter 2, verse 11 of that book. He writes, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Our sufferings and grief are here. Here in your life, here in mine. Here in our shared life together. But I wonder if we can, how we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. I think the first step is that we would face our sufferings and grief. As I said, so often there is a kind of offense that many of us have in this, uh, what I would refer to as a comfort and privilege-centered uh, culture when sufferings and grief invade our lives. We're offended by it. Like, how dare you? Because we have all various levels of success at numbing or covering up the pain, when we do have pain flare up, we then often, I would say, compare ourselves to others who seem to have less pain at the moment. And we feel outrage and we feel covetousness. How dare I have to suffer like this? Why me, we ask. And when we can't face our sufferings and grief and are, are offended by them, well, we tend to project that offense towards God. Do we not? Our relationship with Him becomes transactional and often embittered. God, how could you let this happen to me? We ask. And we answer that with either, it must be because you don't love me, or appreciate the good things I've done, or we answer with, I must be cursed. This suffering must be because of something I've done wrong. And either we know exactly what that wrong thing is and we fixate on it and we condemn ourselves continually uh, about it, or 
we can't quite figure out what the thing is and we just spend all of our energy just wearing ourselves out trying to figure out what it is. Where did I go wrong? And regardless, when we can't face our sufferings and grief, we find ourselves in an extremely precarious place. Precarious for our hearts and our minds and our souls as the the sufferings and the grief inevitably come and sometimes they just mount up, don't they? And it can take out a person's faith. And perhaps yours is teetering right now. Right on the brink. Or maybe it's someone you know. Maybe there's someone you wish was sitting next to you right now that just can't bear to come and be in a place like this. I think a lot of people have been pushed to the brink in this pandemic. Whole societies, whole churches have been brought to the, the breaking point. My hope in the darkest days of the pandemic was that because we were all sort of sharing this common suffering, that we were all in this together, this grief that we were all sharing, I had hoped that as a culture we might stop asking why me because we were all dealing with the same stuff. I was hoping that we would go to the place where the majority of people in the world live with regard to suffering. And that's, well, of course me. I don't think our enormous prosperity in the West has done us any favors as it relates to suffering. And to be honest, it makes it very hard for your average Western Christian to really understand the gospel. But what if? What if we will do what our sisters and brothers in Christ in Central Africa or Central America or even just on the other side of the tracks do with suffering, which is to accept it and, yes, lament it. I mean, I'm not saying that anyone wants to say that sufferings and griefs are are just fine, no no big deal. No, lament, but they are not obsessed with it. In fact, they even rejoice in it, and I've seen it. And I think it's because as they all share in common suffering and grief, that's where they meet face-to-face with their Lord, who is their suffering servant. I think when we are struggling to face our sufferings and grief, there is no passage of Scripture more helpful than our Old Testament lesson this morning from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So if you would be so kind and open that up. We are in Isaiah chapter 53. You can find that uh, in the Pew Bibles if you're needing to use one of those on pages 613 and 614. This passage is a poem, and it's all about a figure known only as the prophet's servant. My servant, he calls him. And the servant has come to be known in most uh, 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 traditions as the suffering servant. That's his, his title, the suffering servant. Who is the suffering servant? 
Well, he seems to be a messianic figure from an Old Testament standpoint. And from as early as Philip the Evangelist encountering the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, who was reading this very passage in Acts chapter 8, Christians have identified this figure specifically with Jesus Christ. And so I think we do well to read this passage through the lens of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And here's what this prophetic poem says about Jesus, the servant. Sufferings and grief are not foreign to the servant, first. Second, sufferings and grief are not without purpose. And thirdly, sufferings and grief do not have the last word. So there's been a lot of talk lately uh, about the concept of empathy. Lots of talk about empathy. There's TED Talks about empathy. Brene Brown talks about empathy. A lot of talk about empathy. Why are we talking so much about empathy? I think it's because the perception has been that we've lacked it in our culture. We are lacking in empathy. And when we suffer, that's when we really need empathy. We need it from others. And, of course, the reverse is true. When we encounter suffering, that's when our empathy is most needed by others. As Atticus Finch instructed his beloved scout in To Kill a Mockingbird, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Suffering people need people to understand them. And what they are feeling and experiencing in their suffering. That's always the first step before any meaningful, loving actions can be considered, let alone made. Whether we can understand the exact circumstance or can at least imagine what it might be like. How can we ever show love or compassion Without that, without that empathy, right? We have to have empathy or there can be no real love. And I think that's partly why we try to distract from and anesthetize our suffering and our grief. On the one hand, we don't think anyone can empathize. And if they can't empathize, they won't do anything to help. And so I'll just be left alone with my sufferings and grief and so I better just numb the pain. And likewise, we... We'll do the same thing because we encounter suffering, right? We'll, we'll do whatever we can to sort of, you know, kind of deal with the problem. You know, throw the money out of the window and roll it back up again at the corner. As the panhandler puts up the cardboard sign or whatever the version is that when we come and we walk past, we want to just move away. We just don't want to empathize. And we too often assume the same of God that we do of our neighbors, Perhaps we assume this about God more than anyone, and that's this. How could God ever empathize with my sufferings and grief? Surely he can't, and he doesn't. He's too holy. He's too distant. And so I'm left alone with my sufferings and my grief. And ironically, it's perhaps because of this idea that we will reject God Consciously or subconsciously, overtly or subtly. And so we read in this poem that the servant, verse 3, was despised and rejected 
by men. And in this rejection, we find that the servant actually, he can empathize. We don't think he can empathize, so we reject him. But as we reject him, that's how he can empathize. He is, we read, a man of sorrows. Or it could be translated pains and acquainted with grief. And I was struck by that word acquainted when I was reading through this. You know, I've read it a million times, but I just was like, ooh, acquainted with grief. I think it's significant that the servant doesn't only just have a little sampling of grief, a little amuse-bouche of grief, just a little something to kind of get an idea of a little bit of what it's like to be a human. No, he's well acquainted with it. And you don't have to necessarily go to Gethsemane or to Calvary to see the Lord's pains and his grief. It's, it's all through the walk that he had on this earth. You can just go to the grave of his friend Lazarus as he weeps. Or to the cliff in Nazareth where his, his family friends, his, his lifelong neighbors, and, and fr- they went, took him to a cliff to throw him off and kill him. Or you can go to the fact that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, not to mention all, of course, those things that happened in that terrible Thursday and Friday. As his good friend Judas betrayed him with a kiss. And his dearest friend Peter denied him three times. It's not hard to see in the life of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows, right? Not a man with some sorrows. It was just in the fabric of his whole self and his life and his journey in this world, day to day. Can he empathize? In his humanity, in his full humanity, Jesus can most definitely empathize. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it in chapter 4, verse 15 of that letter, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He gets it. Sufferings and grief are not foreign to the servant, Jesus the Christ. But he does more than just endure sufferings. He does more than just get acquainted with sufferings that come his way. He takes on the sufferings of others. That's what compassion is, right? That is to suffer with, to suffer for. And that's what he does. And so we find that the suffering servant, Jesus, isn't just down in the pit with us so that he can empathize and sympathize and say, wow, this really does suck. I am so sorry. This is terrible, isn't it? Like If that's it, that doesn't actually bring much comfort. It doesn't help. He's down in the pit in order to carry our sufferings and our griefs for us. He has great purpose in his sufferings and his griefs. Great redemptive purpose in his sufferings and his griefs. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Why? What's the purpose in that? As we just read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, the Lord Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Many in desperate, eternal 
full and complete need. It's because the righteous wrath of God upon the sin of mankind is due. The chastisement is due. The pain and agony from the fall is manifest. And the suffering servant, he takes all of that upon himself, on his own strong shoulders. He, he bears that burden for the sake of our redemption from sin and death. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Sufferings and grief are not without purpose. Jesus shows that suffering, compassion, even grief as acts of love have redemptive purpose. Even as we endure terrible things, the witness that we give as we bear it, the empathy we gain as we bear it, the way we bring our wounds to bring healing to others, it's all rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our suffering servant. And so, grief as acts of love, they have redemptive purpose. There's nobility even in our sufferings, in our griefs. But this can only be understood knowing that sufferings and grief do not have the last word. No, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, has the first and the last word. And it's a word of triumph. So this poem, it actually begins in the previous chapter, chapter 52. If you look back in verse 13, uh, we read something that doesn't exactly fit with the verses that come after. Like if you listen to what we just read a little bit ago, would you have thought that this whole poem starts off like this? The prophet says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then the last words of the poem, they burst forth from the dark depths of sufferings and grief with a triumphant song of a victor parading into his kingdom with the spoils of his victory. Verse 10 to 12. I'm just going to read them to you because I just don't think I can paraphrase it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. If this victory prophesied by Isaiah is real, and Easter Sunday would say to us, yes, it is real, can we rejoice in our sufferings and grief knowing 
that our Lord can empathize with us. He does something very purposeful with his sufferings and griefs. For our sake, he's pierced, nails in his hands and in his feet, crown of thorns on his head. And with those arms stretched wide, he takes on our sufferings and griefs. He bears the burden that we cannot carry. And sure enough, three days later, he's won the victory. And those sufferings and grief that you and I experience, they do not, will not, cannot have the last word. They do not have the last word. And that's the hope of the gospel, friends. That is our call to be a people of that even as we suffer and have grief. Let's not anesthetize ourselves from it. Let's not avoid it, get ourselves distracted from it. Recognize it, see it, hold it, share it. And bring it to the foot of the cross where he can bear it. And let us rejoice in the victory he has won. Knowing that this too shall pass. And there will be a day. There's no more pain. No more suffering. No more grief. Amen.